0: So I apologize for that. Um, this is where we left off here with the financial impact of a of a confirmation. Let, let's see if my pen works. Hey, my pen actually works. So that's one out of, I don't know, ten things that I've checked at this point. All right, so we left off last time and this is a, a good point for us to review because you will see questions about this and this can be something that, that has some complexity to it. The idea here is that our production order carries with it a lot of information because it's a cost object as we just had a quiz question about. And so one of the pieces of data, one of the sets of data that is, um, that is listed on the, uh, pl- on the production order is our planned material cost, our planned labor cost, and then of course as production continues. Various work centers will record the items that they actually consumed and the time that various people spent on the work and so we can actually keep track of the actual material costs incurred, the actual labor costs uh, in addition to that. So all of this is going to be captured on, on the production order. Now at this point we haven't done anything with that data other than capture it on our, on our production order. And so moving ahead here, the next thing after the production confirmation, which is what we were just talking about, is the items being sent back to our warehouse for storage. So uh, keep in mind that from the warehouse's perspective, this is a goods receipt. Really very similar to what they experience when they're receiving goods that we have purchased from an external supplier they show up they have to put them away just like the other things that they do and so this is a a goods receipt Uh, the idea here is a standard goods receipt into storage it will be a different movement type so as we go back through our records uh, we can track you know okay this was a goods receipt against a purchase order this was a goods receipt against a production order and so the Ability to classify these movements as a three digit number uh, might seem kind of uh, irrelevant and I certainly don't expect you to memorize the numbers here. But the significance of that force in our ERP system is, is rather important because it allows us to trace back through traffic going into and out of our warehouse as we have different goods movements and say okay you know we're looking for a particular good movement and if you think about all of the things that might be coming into and out of our warehouse on an hourly basis depending upon Uh, the velocity of of transactions, it could be rather substantial. And so this gives us a way to to track those things down. The impact of this goods receipt is not unlike the impact of a goods receipt when we're looking at getting things in from from a vendor. There's going to be a material document that's going to be created to memorialize that we now have uh, a certain... And I asked you to supply this last time, but I'll go ahead and give it to you this time. The material document is where we record the quantity. So we now have X units of something uh, in our possession that we are putting into a particular storage location. The FI document will, of course, capture the value of those things. So remember, different documents memorialize different aspects of that transaction, both of which are important to us, but the material document focuses on quantity, the FI document focuses on on the dollar impact the material master will of course be updated here and so that will be reflective of the quantity and the value of the items so it's memorialized in these different documents but also if we go in and we look at the material master it allows us to see this information so think about all the different kinds of questions this could could generate on an exam uh, true or false Um, the production confirmation document or the production confirmation process is where we update the quantity of items that we have in our possession kind of awkward in my phrasing there at the top of my head but the answer to that would be false no The production confirmation just memorializes that production is done, but we don't actually update our quantities and update the dollar value of those things until it goes back to the warehouse and gets checked in. Which realize that could be a matter of of hours or it could take a couple of days for things to leave the production facility and and make their way into into our warehouse. So the production order is going to be a a key document throughout this because it as the cost object that is critical to the production process is where various quantities are going to be captured, not only the quantity of things that were produced, but the quantities of things that were consumed, there's going to be dates, there's going to be times there's going to be cost reflected there this production run might have taken a matter of hours or a production run might have spanned across multiple days so you would have different shifts of people you would have different records of that regardless of how simple or complex the production process is the the production order is the document that is going to to capture all of that but we're of course talking about the goods receipt step at this point and the fact that we do of course have a goods receipt document this is not a new slide for us really Uh, this picture is one that we saw when we talked about goods receipt of items coming in from a vendor really the only thing that is going to be different here is going to be the goods receipt uh, number associated with the goods movement but otherwise quantities dates locations where things are placed all of that is very similar to other goods receipt operations now let's talk about the accounting postings associated with this and this is an area where there could be potential confusion so let's make sure that doesn't happen to us alright so we had the planned and we had the actual and you'll notice now in our table here on this slide, additional values have been have been filled in, okay? And it's not uh, rocket science what's going on here, and we really could get away with this third, or actually fourth column, not being a part of the presentation here, because you'll notice that the target is really the same as the plan. So we had targeted to consume fourteen thousand five hundred dollars worth of materials and six hundred twenty-five dollars worth of labor and and so we had expected our cost to be fifteen thousand one hundred twenty-five but of course our actual costs were different so there's a variance here and I don't know that you really need an explanation of how the variance is calculated here but it's the actual uh, minus the the target here and so we can see that we went in this case four hundred eighty seven dollars over budget for materials and twenty dollars and eighty three cents over budget in terms of labor so the big thing to keep in mind is when I do my accounting posting what is my accounting posting based on and my accounting posting is based on my plan or you could think of it as being based on my target because those are essentially synonymous here so when I receive these materials I am debiting a finished goods inventory account reflective of the fact that I now have more of an asset than I did previously and so my debit here is for $15,125 and then my offsetting credit is to an account called the manufacturing output settlement account so this is the first time we have seen this particular transaction in any of our discussions but all we are doing here is taking our planned material and labor amounts and doing the postings based on what our plan is this leads to the obvious question of what about what about this variance here and the answer to that is we're, we're going to have to handle that in a separate posting but we don't handle that as part of the goods receipt process the goods receipt process is based totally on the thought that everything went according to our plan. And so this is the corresponding debit and credit. Let me reiterate a a recommendation that I made to you previously, which is start making a list of all the different accounting postings and all of the different processes and and make sure you can answer questions associated with them because that will be uh, a part of your overall final exam. Uh, yes. target doesn't always plan planned based on quantity, right? Yes yes so there could be uh, a variation here we're assuming that the quantities matched up with our plan here but yes you're absolutely right and and we don't really get into the nuances of that but if the plan was for us to make 15,000 units and for whatever reason if if what we check back in or what we receive is 14,500 units then we would do our assignment of cost here or assignment of value based on the 14,500 units. So that would be a difference there. It would still be based on the data from the plan, but the actual numbers would be different in that situation. But you guys don't have to worry about that for, for the way that we're handling the transaction. But yeah, that's a very good observation. So goods receipt end of the production process right and pretty much the answer to that is yes but there are certain transactions related to production that we do have to handle on a on a periodic basis overhead calculation uh, work in process determination and and settlement settlement has to do with these variant costs that we were talking about here a moment ago work in process determination has to do with what if we get to the end of an accounting reporting period let's say the end of a quarter the end of a fiscal year and we have to account for the fact that we have assets that are sitting in our production line they're work in progress we have to reflect that in our accounting postings and of course overhead is something that we calculate and update our records on on a periodic basis but these are not things that we would be doing on a, a daily basis these would be activities that would be more typically associated with, with closing activities for closing a quarter, closing a, a fiscal reporting period. As an aside, and this is a rather important aside, uh, let me share with you something that's, that's not referenced here in the slides. Under the old way of doing business, and this would be true if a company ran SAP ERP or any other ERP or Enterprise Information Systems, under those old systems you would close periodically and so you would typically do your year-end closing no surprise once a year at the end of your fiscal year and you might do some quarterly closing and other things of that sort but clearly your big focus is on your year-end closing this involves a lot of reconciliation of various accounting calculations and other records this is not a trivial activity and it would not be unusual in a large organization for this to take um, certainly we could say days but it might even be more appropriate to describe this as taking weeks might take a couple of weeks or even longer depending upon the size of the organization for this to happen and this is the time of year that uh, you know your accountants are going to be working 12 hour plus days it's a very very stressful time there's a lot of very important things that are going to have to be done here one of the challenges with this is is if we wait and we close our books only annually then we really don't update a lot of our overhead calculations and a lot of our other things uh, until once a year which means that Um, We might have had, let's say, cost overruns that have been going on now for an extended period of time, but we haven't really formally captured that in any of our accounting records, which means that our prices are are not reflective of reality. That's a challenge with this periodic closing. But the reason why companies do this is because of how time-consuming this can be and some of it is things that's time consuming for people but some of it is things that are time consuming for computers to do for example uh, we talked previously about depreciation posting runs well a depreciation posting run is something that could take our system a few hours to actually do that depending upon how many items we're depreciating and the depreciation schedules and so on well this changes with SAP HANA. Now I should say more formally it doesn't necessarily change with SAP HANA but it does change with SAP S4 and and I want to reiterate this because this is something that I think is particularly relevant for you guys particularly those of you that are are going to be entering the workforce in the near future and, and may be involved in this for your company okay let's just back up a little way so let's not go all the way back to the beginning but in the recent past there was SAP R3 SAP R3 turned into SAP ERP just by way of naming and in fact a lot of companies run a a set of products called SAP Business Suite and SAP Business Suite uh, would typically be SAP ERP uh, SAP, uh, CRM, uh, Supply Chain Management, and um, what's the third one, Product lifecycle Cycle Management. Okay. Now, a given company might not run all of these things, but if they run a combination of this, you'll typically hear them saying, we run SAP Business Suite. Well, everything that we have talked about so far to this point is, is database agnostic you could run that on any old database your company wanted to but what SAP as of about four years ago has wanted companies to do is move to SAP HANA. Now the first step that most companies will take is just to migrate their SAP business suite onto SAP HANA and when you do that you you get a benefit uh, the enhanced performance of SAP HANA but you're fundamentally still running the same software with the same functionality and the transactions look the same and and life is not very very different except things hopefully happen a lot faster for you the next step in the overall evolution here is SAP S4 and we have talked about SAP S4 as being the next generation of of ERP and the SAP business suite where everything is rewritten based on SAP HANA technology. Basically, if you want to think of it this way and it's not a perfect analogy, it when you do the transition from SAP business suite to SAP HANA, it would be like if you had an old car And you took it in and ripped out the old engine and put a high performance engine into it. Well, now your car can go a lot faster because of the high performance engine, but it's still the same old car you've been driving. And unfortunately, if your car had an alignment problem before or the air conditioning didn't work, that's the same situation you're in right now. Well, SAP S4 says, well, instead of just going out and slapping a new engine in your car, uh, let's sell you a brand new car. And, of course, your new car is going to come with a new engine in it, but everything else is going to be new as well. That's SAP S4. Now, for the sake of, of making sure you understand how this actually works, this is a product that is not fully delivered at this point. SAP has released what they call S4. Financials, which is financial accounting and cost accounting in this new environment. They also are in the process of releasing S4 logistics, which has to do with material management and I expect production and the things that we have been talking about here as well. The next thing that they are supposed to be releasing is is project planning. But the time horizon for that is still unclear at this point and there will be more things delivered down the road so basically SAP is delivering this product in in phases and what they do is they've given you basically and I don't know how this works in the context of my metaphor it'd be kind of like if you went to a car dealership and said okay we can sell you a new car and right now you get the new chassis and you get the new motor but we don't have the interior yet so Stick with this old interior, bring your car back in a month, and we'll swap it out for the new interior. That's kind of what they're doing to companies at this point because they're still developing this product. Well, what does all of this have to do with this slide about periodic processing? S4 has totally rewritten the way that financial processing is done. Under the old SAP ERP. For example, accounting documents were spread out over multitudes of tables, financial accounting and cost accounting was segregated. It was very, very complicated. As a part of their S4 simplification strategy, they have moved that down to a much smaller set of tables, which allows the system to work much, much faster. The punchline is, they say that you can do a daily flash close of operations. So instead of periodic closing once a year, you can close every day at the end of business, which means that things that we were only capturing data on on a quarterly or annual basis, we can essentially capture that on a daily basis. And if we're having cost overruns, we can reflect that in our pricing much, much faster than we have been able to do that previously. Now let's be clear, this daily fast close is not a complete close. You know, we don't have to file tax returns and all of the other things like that on a daily basis. So you're not doing everything that you would do with your annual or quarterly close. But for the important accounting postings and other things like that, you can actually do this every day now. And it's something that a lot of companies are finding uh, very, very attractive have a bad and all of a sudden you' all really you a bad day you know your point is is really well taken which is okay this is cool that we can do this but what does that mean for us in business operations you know uh, we we have maybe we used to every year get our end of year closing information and all the managers would get together and use that to develop the strategic plan whenever you get that information every day what are you going to do with it and and companies you know this is one of those things where sap is saying hey now you can do this and companies just say it wow that sounds cool but what does that mean and and that's the open question here A lot of things like this daily fast close, SAP touts as here's something you can do now that you couldn't do before, give us money. And businesses have to say, okay, well, would that really be valuable or not? And I expect a lot of companies that move to S four won't change their habits. They'll still do closing the way they always have, but they would at least have this capability. Yes. Um just for an application you probably could set up a call on it. So that if your daily hits a certain level, then you start taking it into consideration. If it goes below or above a certain level for the week, month end, And that would be, I guess, where the daily closure comes in. And I don't know if we've talked about it in here, but it, it bears uh, reiteration if we have. IBM and SAP have partnered in the creation of what they're calling their boardroom of the future, which looks like a really cool place to work. It looks like something you'd see on Star Trek because it's a room where basically all of the walls are nothing but computer monitors and it's all uh, performance displays and and dashboards of different things and and the idea is that you know you could convene your board meetings in there and as you look around the room you could see things that are going well and going poorly but it's just not feasible to you know oh look that just turned red let's get right on that you go crazy really quickly so yeah the idea of figuring out okay only when it gets this much out of tolerance do we care and we're not going to look at it second by second because we'll go nuts we'll look at it weekly yeah all of those are things that companies are going to have to figure out but it's a new reality it's something that companies could not have done before because the computing power and and the infrastructure wasn't there to support that all right so we talked about here or mentioned overhead calculation work in process determination and settlement so let's talk about that for a second overhead calculation we have a lot of indirect costs remember that our production order captures the fact that Bob stood in work center 217 a and ran the lathe for 45 minutes on this particular production order So Bob writes that down, and the cost of Bob's labor gets incorporated into the production order. But what about Bob's supervisor and the plant manager and the secretary and all of the other costs associated with our manufacturing facility that would not be direct labor? It's not free. We've got to account for that somehow. Well, those are indirect costs so at some point we have to take all of those costs and allocate it to our overall cost of actually engaging in manufacturing we don't keep track of it on the production order because we can't say okay the supervisor stopped by and looked at this for 20 minutes so I have to assign 20 minutes of that time to this so what we do is we just take these periodic amounts and, you know, once a month we add in the supervisor's salary, the manager's salary, and so on. And then we have other things like the electric bill that comes in, you know, let's assume once a month, water bills, other things of that sort. Yeah. What's that? Depreciation would fall into this category. All these other things that are part of the cost of operating our manufacturing facility that aren't, aren't direct costs. Now, what's going to happen with all of these overhead calculations is these values are accumulated in in cost centers. So we would have a cost center associated with probably management salaries, with utilities, and other things of that sort. And then periodically, we would allocate these to production orders based on predetermined rules. Now, you did this in your lab work, but I I don't know to what degree you understood what you were doing, and you didn't do it related to production. You did it related to, I think, a company picnic. But let me give you a hypothetical example. Let's assume that we operated our factory 365 days a year 24 hours a day okay workers don't even get Christmas off no holidays we are always open always doing stuff okay it's not the most pleasant way to work but it makes my example here a lot easier okay and further to make my example really easy when we add up all of our indirect costs at the end of the year we had 365 thousand dollars in indirect costs and to further make our life a lot easier every day we did exactly one production run so every day was just one production run and we started at the beginning of the day we ended at the end of the day there was no overlap all that happened every day one production run for always the same quantity well at that point you could say okay we got this three hundred sixty five thousand dollars we need to allocate it to the production orders we had 365, or we had 365 production orders, all of the same size. Let's give each of them a thousand dollars, and we can do that. We allocate that. That would be a very reasonable thing to do. Now, my hypothetical example is so much more easier than the way this plays out in the real world okay because you have production runs of different sizes that take different lengths of time and so we've got to figure out a strategy for taking this total amount this three hundred sixty five thousand dollars and allocating it to the work that's been done that's the overhead calculation and that's what we pay cost accountants and other accountants to advise us on a reasonable strategy for doing that and coming up with a system for that to be done. And like I said, in your lab work, you did that. You set up a cost center structure and you did, um, you did an allocation of the costs from a, from a uh, company picnic to various other parts of your organization. And so you've seen that even though you might not have fully at the time understood what you were doing. So, this is the overhead calculation. This is a periodic calculation that we do as a part of a, a typical closing activity. Questions about any of this? Yeah? Our standard process is just to allocate it monthly, monthly average cost of production, and sort it out as far as how much work produced. Okay. And so that would be a very reasonable way to do that, and it would be interesting to see now, is that going to change if you could do, you know, you could do, what we're saying is with S4, you could do this every day, and you could allocate your overhead, but of course, you probably don't know what your electric bill is on a daily basis and water bill, so you're still going to have to do some things periodically all right so the other thing that we said was an example of periodic processing was work in progress determination and the idea here is we have a work in progress inventory we took some materials and we did a goods issue and we sent them to production and they're in the production facility but they have not come back to us by way of a goods receipt but in between these two points there's still value there now, the point is, unless we're actually having to close our records, we really don't care about that. You know, the goods are kind of going to disappear for a short period of time and then they're going to come back into our records. And it's not that big a deal unless we're at the end of a fiscal period and we have to account for that dollar amount. So periodically, the value of what is in the production process is calculated and posted to the general ledger as a way of capturing this, this information. Um, this is not essential if we're doing very short production runs. I mean, you know, we may issue things to production at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they bring us back their work product at 5 o'clock in the afternoon it's one day we're not really cared about that you know for a for an eight hour period we we weren't capturing this work in process similarly if the if the materials that we're moving around are not high-value materials the fact that we can't precisely tell you where they are other than in the production facility somewhere is not something that's a big deal but where this does become pretty critical is if the value of the materials are high. okay? This is a rather unusual example, but imagine our factory is not like a factory that makes, that makes muesli, but it's a factory that cuts diamonds. And every diamond is really, really expensive. And so we want to make sure that we don't ever have diamonds just kind of disappearing. And we don't ever want to issue five diamonds to the factory and get three cut diamonds back. Okay, So we need some pretty precise controls here. When the value of the material is high, then this work in process might represent a pretty substantial dollar value. Uh, when the production runs we're talking about take an extended period of time. This would be going back to an example we've used previously, if we're making an aircraft. And so we issue the materials to the production of an aircraft, but the aircraft isn't going to be finished we're not going to have goods receipt for for months well at that point um, figuring out the actual assets that have been committed to a particular project is something that we might want to keep track of a little bit more tightly and that's my example here this would be relevant for for aircraft production construction and and so on and so we have this work in process determination that happens periodically so that's the second thing and we won't concern ourselves with the actual with the actual postings of this Um, it happens so rarely and it's something that's driven by the accounting people and so we will just leave this off of one that we concern ourselves with debits and credits on Any questions though or comments about this work in progress determination? All right. So we said overhead work in process determination, and the third thing that we do is periodic processing. Is this settlement of the difference between planned and actual costs? This variance. And the reason for that is sometimes you do a production run and you're a little bit over. Other times you do a production run and you're a little bit under. The whole idea behind having planned values is they're the target that you expect to hit. It's kind of like if you're um, you know, throwing darts at a dartboard. Sometimes you might be high. Sometimes you're a little bit low. Sometimes you're off to the left. Sometimes you're off to the right. But you kind of hope that on average, it clusters around the, around the bullseye here so what we have to remember is the reason why we have to do this is we only concerned ourselves with plans costs in the goods receipt step so when we do this settlement however often we elect to do this this is now where we focus on the variance okay so remember what what has actually happened here in in this scenario is we're going to look at this as if we only had one transaction but in fact for a company you'll recall and, and focus on the top of this first remember we said before that you had the um, the different accounts you had the the uh, what slide is it? and I'll go back here to uh, to look at this for a second so that we can put this into the proper context let me find it slide 44 see if I can navigate there Whoops. That wasn't what I wanted to do, but oh well. Okay, so remember before, we debited the inventory account and we credited this manufacturing output settlement account. All right, now we're we're going to look at this manufacturing output settlement account. And we're going to take care of, um, or excuse me, let me back up. We're going to take care of the variance that we see that's down here in this particular particular table. So what's going to actually happen here now is is we have the variance amount which in this case $508.33. We're going to take that variance and we're going to debit the manufacturing output settlement variance account by that amount and credit the manufacturing output settlement account. Now what this is as you notice if we add these two items together, it gives us this fifteen thousand six thirty-three thirty-three. So manufacturing is reflecting the fact that they actually, if you will, spent fifteen thousand six hundred and thirty-three. But we don't want to toss this five hundred and eight dollars into an asset account. You know, we don't want to basically say, oh, because you were bad at making it and cost us more money, that makes what you made more valuable. The value of the item is is what we plan for the value to be. But in order to capture the the overrun here, we have these settlement variance accounts which allow us to over time accumulate this. Now what this means is that in fact, if, if our variance were a good variance and let's use good and bad versus positive and negative for the sake of clarity here. If we actually made these things cheaper than we had planned, well some of these numbers over here might might be negative numbers. And so what might happen is sometimes we have a cost overrun, sometimes we have a cost overrun, underrun, and so over time you would hope that the balance of this account would would hover close to zero. But if we see the balance of this account being a very, very large debit balance, then that tells us that our plans are kind of out of whack, and we really need to figure out why we see that discrepancy. Questions or comments? All right, so let me get my paperwork back in order here and that's pretty much it for the production process the last few slides here are just the observation that there's lots of reports that we can look at in the system related to the production process Uh, some of them are like online lists that analysts would look at work lists or the people doing the work these are things they would look at things like how much I need to make today what's on the schedule for me to make today and so you know we could go in and you have a transaction like this one that shows uh, the components of, of a particular production run and and once again you saw things like this in your ERP sim related experience where you took a plan to order converted it into a production order and and we can see here okay here's a particular material and when it's required and and the actual quantity and what plant is going to be making it and we can see that it's actually been released here into production and, and so it's, you know, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that we can kind of see okay these are, are where we are at any given point in the process and, and that's what this is showing here notice that these are the different actual steps in the in the what the steps in the what the product routing okay and so we could if we have everybody in the factory you know as they do certain things they press buttons or or otherwise register their work that this can be updated And, and I think that's a very important thing for us to keep in mind you probably are not going to have people in the factory running SAP transactions what you're actually going to have is them having buttons or switches or other things that they do that when they do that it causes a transaction to, to be run in the system. And by the way, that would be a very relevant example of those of you that have done, or in the future would do um, an ABA program. You know the idea might be that in a manufacturing facility, here's a button, and every time that button is pressed, it sends essentially a computer signal out that you can receive into your computer and you write a computer program that basically says okay every time I get that signal then do this accounting posting or update this and Those are the kinds of things that you would handle with a custom program like that to populate this so that the people in your factory aren't having to go into a terminal and run a transaction and key things in. So a lot of the things that you've done in the context of your lab work, where you did a goods receipt and you had to put a check mark in and you had to type in quantities, that would be really tedious for us to expect our employees to do so we give them easier tools to work with and then write programs to actually take that data and and put it into put it into the transaction here's a screen that you have seen in your, your lab work where I think this is actually transaction MD07 that we can look at a particular material and it shows us how many uh, of the units are in stock what are the independent requirements what planned orders do we have for the item and, and we can kind of see where we are in the overall history of this particular item this transaction is is one that's incredibly powerful and valuable because we could click on these little magnifying glasses here and drill down into the details of a particular line item. In your lab work, you turn planned orders into production orders in a different manner than you guys did when you ran ERP-SIM. In ERP-SIM, you ran transaction CO41. You saw that big grid of items. You clicked on a row and hit convert. You could also, on this particular transaction, right click on any of these planned orders and there's an option there for to convert to production order. So this particular screen is one that can actually drive a lot of the actual work being done in the context of production. And that is the end of the production process. And so uh, I think we were in that particular discussion for what about uh, three days together, but we have wrapped that up at this point. Questions that you guys have about the production process? How does ERP account for model I don't know that I could give you a good answer for that. Um, it does, but I don't know what the mechanism is for for that. Other questions. All right. The next thing that we are going to talk about, which is the material planning process, is our our last big discussion. And I think in light of what I had mentioned previously about when we're done with that, we're done. And the fact that we still have about 30 minutes of class time left. I think let's go ahead and go into this and then maybe with the jump that we're going to get on it here and then our time together on Monday uh, we may be able to to, uh, to be finished so give me a moment here hopefully you you it out this last slide deck here on, on the material planning process I made this comment I think in the context of our discussing the production process but the heart of an ERP system where ERP got its start was in companies that were engaged in manufacturing wanting to use computers to help them with manufacturing and it got started with the MRP process and helping companies do ordering and then helping companies do the overview management of their production process and it kind of grew out from there. So a lot of the core functionality that companies rely on these systems for is helping them manage their materials. So the material planning process is broken out by your textbook into a separate chapter. And so that's why we are are treating it this way. But as a point of fact, we're really just kind of continuing our discussion of the production process material planning looks at questions like what materials do I need and I will once again harken back to your example with ERP sim one of the biggest challenges you had to figure out as a company is you know what materials should you bring to to market what quantities of materials um, when are they needed where are they needed What's interesting to me is your book talks about the first three questions, but for whatever reason, totally omits the fourth question, which I think is equally important. If we're a multinational company, having the right quantity of the right materials on Tuesday only does us well if we have them where we need them. If they're in St. Louis and we need them on the west coast we've we've got a problem on our hands. So getting the right materials in the right quantities into the right place at the right time is the focus of material planning. The challenge here is and and I don't know whether you ever consciously realize this in the context of ERP sim. What I really like about the ERP sim experience is generally if you have eight teams all of those eight teams typically are, are profitable. We have occasionally had semesters where during our ERP-SIM competition, one team ran into a loss situation. But for the most part, all of the companies wound up profitable. But there's a big difference in the company that's in first position and the company that's in, in last position. And it's often not because the company in the last position made bad decisions. It may just be that they didn't make the best decision. You know, you could have sold blueberry or strawberry. And neither one of those is a bad decision. But the better decision, the best of those two, would have been blueberry and oftentimes that's the situations that companies face it's not so much you know is this right or wrong and it's a very black or white decision it's the idea we could do these eight things all eight of them have pros and cons associated with them and if I pick the wrong one then the outcomes going to be different between the one that I picked and the one that's the best one and that difference and the between what I picked and what's the best we refer to that is as, as opportunity cost and so this is where you really get into uh, refining your operations and trying to focus on not just making good decisions but making the best decisions and so what you have to do in trying to make these decisions is look at the costs and look at the risks associated with each of these questions and, and realize it's a very complex process that can represent a strategic opportunity for a company. Some of you are in a a graduate course that I'm teaching this semester, and it's a good example of this, so I'll I'll mention it here. Uh, Walmart, world's number one retailer. Revenue, world's largest company. If you do a lot of buying online, chances are pretty good you've bought from Amazon, but you may never have bought anything from Walmart.com. Walmart runs an online store but it is nowhere near as successful as Amazon well why did that happen and I believe one reason why it happened is at a certain point in Walmart's history they had a decision to make as to do we jump into this online world and really try to exploit that Or do we stick with doing what we do really well, which is building physical stores and dominating the world in store-based retailing? And they pretty much decided to continue dominating the world in store-based retailing. Is that a good decision or a bad decision? The only way to really know that is to back up in time, make the other decision, and see what the difference would be. And of course, without a time machine, we have no way of doing that but this difference between the decision that you made and this other decision is this idea of an opportunity cost and of course in business we want the opportunity cost here to always be as small as it possibly can which would mean that we are essentially making the best decisions and you face this a lot in in business you know you're a company and you're a steel manufacturer and you buy materials from a supplier and another supplier pops up and says hey i can sell you that same material for two percent less well you think about that and you might say two percent less i like less if it's cheaper that's great but then you also have to look at and say well how do i know it's going to be as good a quality and this supplier that i'm already dealing with they deliver it to me in a way that already works we know how to deal with their product We're already locked into operating it that way is it worth the savings of two percent with the chance that I would be taking the switch to this other company's products which may or may not actually be a good decision and I might look at that and say no for a two percent savings not worth it I'm gonna stick with my existing supplier now, if another supplier pops up and says, I could save you 20%, we might say, yeah, that's worth the chance. You know, we'll, we'll look at all the issues, but we realize there's still risk associated with this. And so a lot of things in business are those kinds of assessment. You look at the upside, you look at the risk, and you try to figure out what, what the best thing to do. We face a lot of those things in this context of material planning one scenario which i just mentioned the the selection of a supplier well one of the key focal areas in material planning is how much that was one of our questions how much of something do we need and the idea here is that the demand for materials is derived from other processes if i walked up to you and said how much blueberry muesli do we need you know you probably first of all would look at me like I'm crazy but then if I said okay no you know play along how much blueberry muesli would I need you really can't answer that question without asking me a whole bunch of questions because it's not a question like who was the first president of the United States that is a factual question that has a definitive answer how much of something do I need is derived from other things you know what am I expecting to sell Um, if we are a make to stock company and I said to you oh well um, we're expecting to sell 10,000 boxes a day for the next 30 days well okay you know now you can give me a better answer to my question of how much do we actually need Um, The demand for materials is often derived from a sales forecast, which is why we really want to do as good a job as we can with coming up with a a realistic sales forecast. Um, If we are a make-to-stock business, our demand would actually be based on actual sales. So in that situation, it's not so much that I'm basing this on we think we're going to sell, the answer is based on we did sell and we already have contracts for the following items and and therefore we have to make good on that we also of course engage in things like production planning and plant maintenance and project planning all of which give us demand for materials what am I talking about here well we've mentioned this before but in the context of plant maintenance We have robots and other production equipment all around our factory. We have a lot of forklifts, and periodically those forklifts need to be tuned up and have belts replaced and be uh, oiled and lubricated and other things of that sort. And so we have to have the materials on hand to engage in that kind of preventative maintenance. So our demand is derived from obvious things like orders from customers and things we plan to sell but it also comes from a lot of other little things that we might overlook but we shouldn't related to areas that could generate demand for for materials as well so we have already talked about this idea of a procurement proposal Uh, typically this takes the form of a purchase requisition where someone in our organization says we need this go out and and buy it for us but we also have to recognize and and we've talked about this before sometimes the way we would want to respond to this would not be going out and buying something but in fact making something an example I like to use of this is if you were a salesperson and worked for Apple you would not tell your boss you know will you buy me a Dell laptop you would get an apple laptop probably sent to you directly from the factory you wouldn't go out and buy it you could just transfer it internally in your organization so this diagram is in your book and what i don't like about this diagram or i guess i should explain to you about this diagram is every other diagram that we've seen of a process has been like do this step do this step then do this step and very defined this is an effort to describe the material planning process by way of a diagram but it just doesn't work that way you know they've tried to create a picture out of something that's not a linear process you know the idea basically is okay we have an operations plan and out of that operations plan we have requirements and those requirements relate to these procurement proposals that we just talked about And so, those procurement proposals might result in us buying something, which would mean we're going to engage the procurement process. Or it might result in us making something, which would result in us engaging the production process. And a lot of times, the outcome of these two processes let us make inventory, which is what we actually turn around and sell. So the merit of this diagram, I suppose, is it emphasizes that what you actually sell to customers is a product of things that you bought and things that you made or some combination of that set. But otherwise, don't treat this diagram the same way you treat the other process diagrams where, where you are focused on one step coming before the other. Uh, I put it here just by way of facilitating our discussion. What are the organizational parts of our organization that come into play in material planning? It's not really that different than what we talked about with production planning. The client is always relevant. The company code is relevant for financial accounting reasons. The plant and storage locations are focal elements in logistics in general. You know, this is where we make stuff. This is where we put stuff. This is where we buy stuff and things come in by way of a goods receipt. Those are very critical elements in material handling. Those are the organizational elements that we tend to focus on. Master data that's relevant in material planning. A lot of this is what we just spent time talking about. Bills of material are very important to us. Product routings are important to us. Product groups and and we'll come back and talk to this and a lot of this discussion harkens back to things that you did very early in the semester and let's talk about product groups for a second imagine your job was to do sales forecasting you get a job right out of college doing sales forecasting and that would be a pretty good job all right and let's assume to stick with like what your lab work has been You get a job doing sales forecasting for a bike company. And you're all excited because this is a really cool job and it's really important. And you show up for your first day at work. And they say, okay, we're ready for you to do sales forecasting. And you say, okay, great. And you sit down and they hand you a giant sheet of paper that lists the 75,000 bicycles that the company makes. And they say, forecast how many of all of those we need to make and it all of a sudden your job probably doesn't look so fun anymore okay when we start thinking in terms of forecasting for individual units very very quickly this can get overly complex so the way we solve that is by product groups and we might do something like this okay so here's bikes and 75,000 is how many we make And um, I'm going to divide this up in a way that probably is not reflective of your your lab work. We say, okay, well, actually we sell two different kinds of bikes. In a broad category of way, we sell what I'll call sporty bikes and we sell fun bikes, okay? Sporty bikes would be like what you'd ride if you were competing in the Olympics. Fun bikes is like what you buy your five-year-old daughter. Okay, so right away we divide them up into these two groups and we discover that now that means that we, uh, if we stick with our numbers here, um, we, we actually have 25,000 sporty bikes and 50,000 different models of fun bikes. Okay, well, now let's divide this further. And, and here's where I'm going to start like my, my we're gonna move further into a fictitious world okay so we have Olympic bikes and we have uh, non Olympic bikes and then we have you know I'll just say like international sport bikes okay those are the three different categories of sports bikes and so for Olympic that's 10,000 of these 20,000 and 10,000 non Olympic and my international is 5,000 okay well Here's my point. We can keep treeing this out into these groups. okay? And we can break this down into quantities and and do all of that. Then at the end of the day, when it comes time to do forecasting, you could say, next year, we expect to sell, um, and we got a lot of bikes here. So this is going to be a pretty big number. Next year, we expect to sell 12 million bicycles. And of those 12 million bicycles, we expect 20% of them to be sporty bicycles and 80% of them to be fun bicycles. And of the 20% that are sporty bicycles, uh, we expect 40% of them to be Olympic and 40% of them to be non-Olympic and 20% to be international. And notice what I'm doing now as I start working down the tree. I'm just dealing with proportions here. And once I take into account all of those proportions based on these product groups, now I don't have to do the actual forecast. I can push this onto the computer. All I have to do is come up with a good basic number here and then come up with reasonable proportions for different product groups and my estimates will come out of that. Let's look at like a Walmart store okay if we looked at a Walmart store here in Johnson City and a Walmart store in Atlanta we would see a lot of similarities they sell a lot of the same products there are some products that are different but let's just focus right now on the products that are the same. One big difference might be that when you walk to the shelf here in Johnson City and looked at, let's say, uh, frozen pizza, a particular flavor of frozen pizza, there might be 10 units of that here in Johnson City where the store in Atlanta would have 25 units. Same products, but just different quantities to meet the demands of that locale. Well, that's what product groups allow us to do we can build these structures put things in different groups and then when we plan we don't have to plan based on individual items we plan based on on these groups and then we force the work onto the computer we force the computer to look at the bill of materials and say okay you figure out how many you know seats i need to order and how many of this model handlebar i need to order and we have the computer do the explosions is what we would call this because computers are really good at that so we keep our eye on the big picture we use the computer to help us with that product groups are, are a reasonable way to do this so you know the system has it has the MRP view it has the work scheduling view all of the things that we have talked about before is a way that the system can help us decide okay what are we going to make in-house what are we going to buy and what are we going to do some of each with and then what things are we going to discontinue i think i shared this with you previously but it's relevant here for me to repeat in erp sim you produced all your muesli the developers of erp sim have toyed with but not actually rolled out a version of the game where you could contract with other companies to actually make your muesli. Which would be kind of interesting, you know, you could be company C and be making muesli to sell to your customers and also making some muesli for company D as a subcontractor. And you might say, oh, we you know, we have demand in excess of what we can make. So we're going to make 150,000 units of blueberry muesli and we're going to buy 150,000 units from a supplier and it might cost us a dollar 75 to make it ourselves we have to pay a supplier a dollar 90 but it's still a good deal because we're selling it for 275 a box <clears throat> those are the kinds of decisions that companies run into all the time because very rarely is it a i always make it i always buy it situation sometimes you're you're doing a blending of this comments or questions